What's good, everyone? My name is Jacob Moses, and welcome to the Peep the Ten podcast, a monthly podcast where in each episode, we chat with the Ten Fish Advocate to ramp up our Ten Fish knowledge, hear stories from across the Ten Fish supply line, and most important, boost our never-ending love for the humble Ten Fish. In this episode, I chat with Matt Caputo, president of Tony Caputo's Market and Deli in Salt Lake City, Utah. Caputo's gets Ten Fish, or as Caputo's calls them, conservas. Visit their online store at caputos.com, and you'll find over 300 variations of tinfish products, ranging from the sardines and extra virgin olive oil to razor shells and brine, a favorite of Matt's as you'll learn in this episode. Caputos has offered tinfish to its tight-knit community in Salt Lake City since it opened in 1997, and today inspires customers near and afar to explore the beauty of tinfish. In this episode, Matt gives us an inside look into the conservist culture at Caputo's and how interest in this tasty treat will continue to evolve across the United States and beyond. And the best part? Stick around to the end and you'll discover a deal exclusive to the Peep the Tin listeners that you won't want to miss. Enjoy. Matt, what's going on, friend? How are you? Oh, I'm awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, of course. So excited to have you on the first episode of the Peep the Ten podcast. To get started, Matt, I would love just to learn more about Caputo's. Could you tell me a little bit about how y'all began and what your family had hoped to introduce to the Salt Lake City community? Oh, man. Like, where to start, you know? Uh, yeah, so... I mean, my, my dad's family came over for coal mining from Calabria, Italy, um, in the late 1800s and, and, uh, early, um, 1900s. And they eventually figured out that, you know, coal mining wasn't the, the great opportunity that they hoped it would be. So quickly got out of that and, uh, sure. opened, opened a little corner shop in, uh, the West side of Salt Lake city. And it was just a, you know, a little food market, you know, there was no specialty foods, back in those days, that was just how people got their food was that it was, you know, before supermarkets were invented and sure corner shops, you know, you had a separate butcher shop, you had the separate, this separate, that, and people, you know, pro procured their, their foods in those ways. So the Caputo's got into food retailing here in Salt Lake city as early as the 1920s, that original store, um, you know, eventually succumbed to the pressures of the supermarket, just like every other corner food shop in America. Sure. And that was in the late seventies, but you know, it, it must've made an impression on my dad because after years of being in the, the restaurant business, um, he decided to get into food retailing again and Caputo's was opened up in 1997, uh, in Salt Lake city's West side, actually in the historic Greek town, right across from uh, mm. a park called pioneer park that was kind of kind of looked at at the time like the the super shady area like not sure. really you know gentrify it at all part of downtown and uh so but he took a leap of faith loved the history the area just loved the the, the feel and the vibe and and uh so caputo's was opened back in 1997 and it was more of a specialty shop you know it was like mm. uh, uh we served sandwiches we you know you could get sliced provolone and prosciutto and things like that. But then that was started in 1997 by my dad. I have Google Maps open and I'm, I'm walking down Broadway. Okay. In the Salt Lake City, West Side neighborhood. I, I see Caputo's, see Pioneer Park across the street. Mm -hmm. As I was reading about the history of Caputo's, and you alluded to this as well, I was so intrigued that your father chose to start Caputo's in this neighborhood, you know, as you described it. It sounded like I had a bit of a, a rough tilt to it. I've never been in this neighborhood myself, but um, a considerable homeless population um, in Pioneer Park. What were those early years like yeah. for your father? What, was he starting, you know, this new business um, kind of revolution in the West Side neighborhood? Were there already some folk there? What were those early years like? 
I mean, there were other businesses down there, but they weren't really like retail facing sort of like, you know, consumer based. They didn't rely on foot traffic or people sure. walking through the front door. You know, these are warehouses and thing, things of that nature. So we weren't the first business to go into that area, but we were definitely, if not the first, but among the first, you know, consumer facing kind of restaurant retail sort of spaces. And I, I can speak from experience because I worked there since the day it was open. You know, I was in high school back then, but uh, it was it was interesting, you know, it, but it never felt dangerous, you know, just because the the the, the uh, homeless shelter and other services were right basically across the street from the park. Um, there was, of course, a large homeless population, but it, it wasn't when we opened up, it wasn't like it felt dangerous. You know what I mean? Sure. It wasn't the, you know, gentrified sort of area, but it was easily accessible. The downtown population was there. The freeway was close. Uh, the Greek churches across the street, the Greek festival, mm-hmm. which I also grew up, my mom's Greek. So I grew up, um, you know, dancing at the Greek festival and then later even like professionally. Um, so we, we felt a strong tie to the area and it just, it, it had a good vibe to it, despite the sort of like edgier feel that a lot of people perceived it. It's, it's a beautiful area, a lot of beautiful art, architecture down there and, uh, really historic buildings, including where we're currently, uh, the building we're currently in, you know, it's a over a hundred year old cheese factory. So wow. it's got some character to it, which is is something I think a lot of American cities um, are lacking these days as new developments come and, you know, you've got the totally. sticks and everything starts to kind of look the same. We just felt like that area had a lot of history and a lot of character and you could feel it. And I think you still can today. So, And listeners, if you're curious to see what this neighborhood looks like, type Caputo's in Google Maps, take a walk around. It's a lovely area. And Matt, of course, this is an, an urban design economic development podcast, but before we start talking tin fish, I love the model that your family has set for the ways in which we can, you know, foster a local entrepreneurial ecosystem, create local jobs. Like I imagine the West Side neighborhood, at least in the 90s, when your father chose to set up shop there, was considered blight by a lot of people. And usually the response to that is, okay, let's tear down all these historic structures start new let's you know throw some subsidies to bring in some new development but your father said no like i imagine the rent was inexpensive i don't know if he owned the building but it was more an opportunity for him to try out this new idea and then we flash forward 24 years we have the beauty that is caputo's and it seems like there's been some change in that neighborhood but it's great that i started with you know this local family that wanted to you know bring the goods to the neighborhood it's lovely Yeah. Thanks, man. No, it was, yeah. A lot of people thought he was crazy for opening up down there. You know, if we, but on the other hand, like, you know, if we would have opened up three blocks East um, in the heart of, of downtown, you know, among the skyscrapers and stuff, one, we never could have afforded to do it. And it just didn't feel the right vibe for us. You know, Caputo's that's, that's not what we're all about. You know, we're, we're, we love, we love people that come through our doors with suits on. We love people that come through our doors, you know, that are construction workers. Or blue, and that's the great thing about Caputo's. Is we've, we've, we've always tried to appeal to not necessarily, you know, we sell like really cool specialty foods and things like that, but we really want it to be accessible to and feel accessible to everyone. It's not about, you know, conspicuous consumption and selling the world's most expensive things. It's about preserving traditions, right? And some of those things, because of the way they're produced, happen to be more expensive, but we try and carry, you know, things along the spectrum of price and and be competitive so that we can be open. Uh, You know, everyone can kind of engage with this sort of food traditions. Yeah, it's this great juxtaposition because I think for the traditional United States-based consumer, we think of these products that Caputo sell and we kind of have this you know, narrative fallacy of, you know, um, you know, more of a gourmet, more of a luxury product, but then it is, you know, complemented with your, your father's vision. And I read this quote in an article where he said, you know, I, I didn't need to be someone else. I think he was alluded to being the CEO of Xerox, you know, he's thrilled to be uh, thrilled to be a deli guy. 
Like what else could you want in a local market where you can get these fantastic goods that are very unique to the city, but then also to be ran by a merchant who, you know, wants to make sure it's accessible to the neighborhood. It's fantastic. So um, let's talk a little bit about the store itself. You know, starting off in 97, um, did y'all always focus on more of uh, the specialty product game or did it start off as just like a traditional corner store with the deli? Yeah, more, more just a traditional corner store with the emphasis on the deli, actually. You know, our, at first it was the yeah. sandwiches were just, you know, the day we opened, boom, lying around the block, like, thank goodness, you know, we had... My dad wow. is, is one of those guys that's just, he knows everybody, you know, it's, we call it small Lake city sometimes. And, and my dad's just kind of, he's buddies with everyone. Mm. Like he, he, he's the type of guy that remembers your name, no matter who you are. And, and people just loved him. So when he opened up, you know, he already had, you know, just, uh, all his Salt Lake city feeling like they're his friend come through the door. And, and so we really focused on the sandwiches and then the specialty foods component kind of grew out from that, you know, we're like, uh, we, we, ha we have to bring in these items that aren't easily easy to procure, you know, they weren't available from your local food service supplier. You couldn't just get prosciutto added on to your, you know, your Cisco order or us foods order. Back. They didn't have that sort of sure. thing. So we had to procure that stuff from out of state. And when you do that, you got to bring it in, in quantity, right? You got to make pallet loads. You can't just send it via FedEx or you can never, you know, make the costs work. So we're bringing in big quantities of stuff. Luckily, you know, things that last a while, things that are preserved, right? Preserved foods, like what is cheese? Cheese sure. is preserved milk. You know, what is prosciutto? It's pre preserved ham. And so these things are meant to last a long time, thank goodness. So we had to order up a lot and, you know, more than we're serving on a day-to-day -day basis. So we figured let's just, you know, get some deli cases, store our overflow in there because we didn't have much back stock back in those days. Um, in our original space. And then um, it kind of grew from there. Like, well, if we, ha we have to store it, let's sell it. So we started putting some more stuff on the shelves and it, and it started to grow from there. But then as I graduated from, from mm -hmm. high school and got serious about, you know, marketing uh, in college, my dad really let me take the reins of the ordering of the specialty food side. So he kind of stayed over the, the food service side, like the, the deli. And there were a number of years yeah. where he ran the food service side. Then we bought the building next door, which is where we're currently at, which is much larger, 33,000 square feet total. And so we moved the specialty food wow. side, the cheese counter and all that sort of thing into there. And, and I'm really blessed. You know, my dad let me have so much free reign. Like I got to throw so much stuff at the wall to see what would stick and made all the mistakes in the book. But he just, he saw my, my passion for these foods um, just kind of awakened me and, and gave me a shot to just say, okay, you want to carry, you know, uh, 200 cheeses that Salt Lake City's never really seen before. Like, go for it. <laughs> you and, 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 you know, you want to do a cheese cave that is basically a, a, a sinkhole for money for the first five years. Like, but you told me, you told me how it's going to help us bring more traditional, you know, examples of cheeses. To, to, to Utah, then like, let's do it. You know what I mean? So he was always of the mind, you know, yeah. investing for the distant future, you know, and that's what I love about Caputo and the, the sure. spirit I've, I've kind of hoped to keep alive till to, to today. And we've done a really good job of that, I think is like, you know, we're, we're thinking about what we're doing in the sense of like a, a super long-term legacy. It's never, we're never making decisions based upon like, you know, how much we can squeeze out of this place in the next year or so. It's, it's always like, what are we building that's going to, you know, be advantageous, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when my, when my great grandchildren take over sort of thing. So of course you guys have always had this philosophy of with all of your investments, taking the long game. I'm curious how the, um, the fruits of those investments have bared during this pandemic, you know, a, a, a terrifying time for many folk in the brick and mortar game. You know, right. a lot of places shutting down. I think people rediscovering their neighborhoods for the first time. How did yeah. some of that groundwork y'all put in to take the long game of these investments? You know, how did that show during this pandemic? Oh man, I don't, I don't know how our long term investments, you know, showed up for us 
during the pandemic, but our community sure did. And you know, sure. I think that that uh, we're really lucky. You know, we had a we had a terrifying first two months because we do a lot of wholesale too, right? We do a ton of wholesale, and a lot oh, of it sure. is to restaurants and bars, and and a lot of it is is you know more perish you know more perishable things like the amount of fresh mozzarella with a two week shelf life that we had on hand when all mm. the you know when when Salt Lake uh, Valley Health Department in the state said we had to shut down all the dining rooms in the state um, and every orders just stopped. We had this like giant tidal wave of, of perishables coming at us. That was, was really my first emergency. And then sure. like, two days into that, like fig- trying to figure out what to do with that stuff. We had a pretty big earthquake hit here in Salt Lake that basically dumped everything on off of our shelves and tens of thousands of dollars worth of breakage of just like olive oil and vinegar, just all over Goodness. the floor. And we're in a hundred year old building, right? And and a lot of the buildings around us that were of our age had severe damage. So one of the ways, like a really simple way, one of our investments uh, helped us was when we bought the building that we're in, uh, which was God, what, 15 years ago, um, we made the investment to put in uh, seismic upgrades. And that was mm. not a, uh, not something that was easily palatable at the time because they were very, very expensive to do. Um, and, but you know, who knows, who knows what would have happened if, if we wouldn't have done that. Um, our building held up, luckily there was no, you know, huge structural damage. So after yeah. we cleaned up the mess, unlike some of the buildings around us, which literally crumbled and were, had to be condemned, um, mm. that was one that, that helped. So we were sure. able to continue the fight and get back to figuring out like, okay, what are we going to do with this tidal wave of perishables? And, and one of the things we did was we reached, we reached out to our community and said, Hey guys, like we got all this extra stuff that we were selling to restaurants and stuff. And these, you know, restaurants and, and, and bars aren't the only ones that need help right now. A lot of these artisans and things that we, the products and the people that we support and, and procure here at Caputo's, they really rely heavily on restaurants. So they're, they're hurting too. Mm. So what we've done is say, we've taken this, you know, 50 pound bag of beans that restaurants were buying. We broke it down into pounds. We threw in some fresh mozzarella. We took some of the, the, all these things that chefs were normally buying, buying, broke them down into these bundles that were of, you know, basically people were looking to stock their pantries at that time. And we said, Hey, we're going to throw a discount on these items on us, you know, not from the suppliers or anything. They need our help, sure. need their help. So let's, let's move, get this stuff moved. And so we created this thing called the artisan support pack and we sold them online. We sold them in the stores and they took off and we took care of that first emergency, which was, you know, things that we had bought on credit. You know, we buy sure. from our suppliers. That's very common. You don't just pay in advance. You pay based off of terms. So we still had to pay for all this stuff, but we got it done. We got it dealt with. And that was the first example of we just knew that despite the emergency and despite everyone being nervous and hunkering down at home, that there was this incredible demand and desire. I don't want to even call it demand. There was this desire in the community to make sure that they showed up for the businesses and the type of food production, the type of agriculture that was important to them. They just needed a method to do it. And kind of we, we helped them to, to connect with those artisans and those farmers um, and provide support just by, you know, buying their product. Yes. It's been so impressive to watch the way in which these retailers have innovated during the pandemic. I'm based here in Denton, Texas, beautiful downtown, just a few blocks down from where I reside. We got pizza shops selling wholesale basil. Oh, we got, wow. you know, traditional brunch spots, you know, selling the the raw meats, the gallons of milk, just looking for ways to continue to serve their community during a time in which it was very hard to find the day's needs. I'm, I'm so glad that worked out for y'all. And listeners, you got to peep these artisan care packs. I just bought the latest one. Um, it's a Conserva's care pack. I think it begins nice. February 23rd, a couple of days from now. Um, but we'll now transition into the tin fish game. 
But if you're curious about what that looks like, um, take a look on the Caputo site. Um, it's a beautiful care package. So once we get through this, if you are inspired to peep the tin, um, a great bundle to start with on the Caputo site. Matt got a great grasp of the history of Caputo's and of course y'all's philosophy of bringing the goods mm -hmm. to Salt Lake City. Let's talk a little bit about tin fish or as y'all call them, conservas. Um, have y'all been stocking uh -huh. tin fish since 97 or was this a, a, a newer skew to introduce them to the store? No, we all, we always had tin fish. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember back in the days, the Asdomar sardines and, and mackerel, and, and we had a couple of brands from, from Italy, Calipo. And so we, we've always had some, uh, tin seafood, but it was, it was a small thing, right? Cause you, you can't, you have to stock what the market will bear and with our sure. original focus on sandwiches. And then the next focus was on cheese. And then the next one was on chocolate. It wasn't really a category that we blew up in tour in terms of like having a giant selection until, I don't know, we started probably about really growing it out about six years ago. And then another okay. huge burst was like two, two years ago. And we're still going just nuts today. We're just adding stuff. Uh, left and right. So, yeah, thinking six years ago, what do you think contributed to that shift in customers' interest in tin fish? You know, I, I think about my mother, she's always eating tin fish, mm -hmm. but more so from, you know, looking for nutrient dense products and often had to settle for whatever you could find that, you know, a Kroger, you got your wild planets, happy to see some Bella foods these days, you know, Star Kiss with Charlie the tuna with his yeah. red beret. Um, but there, it wasn't as accessible. What went down six years ago that inspired y'all to, you know, really start to lean in to tin fish? Yeah. Well, one of the things we've always done at Caputo's is, is we don't wait for the consumer interest to be there. Mm. You know, when, for example, when we started, when we started chocolate, doing chocolate back in about 2000, this was just as the craft chocolate movement was really getting its, its start in the U S and People, when, when I, you know, fell in love with Kraft Chocolate and became obsessed with it, learned all I could, read up on it, just was completely fascinated by it. You know, it was this amazing thing to me. But so I brought in like these, say, you know, 50 different chocolate bars from all over the world that were, you know, at the time, let's say five, seven, eight, ten dollar chocolate bars. Um, we put them on the shelf and lo and behold, they didn't sell. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the market wasn't there for it. So what we did was we started classes, you know, and, and we started teaching people about it. And beyond that, we, you know, just like you would expect in a cheese shop where you go in and you, you can engage with a cheesemonger and get samples, um, so that you know what you're buying. We did the same thing with, with chocolate where you can, you know, come in and get a little taste. You don't even have to wait for a class. You can talk to someone just like you would a cheesemonger. You can do that with chocolate at Caputo's. Totally. And so we kind of started doing the same thing with, with tin seafood in the sense that, okay, we just got to have more. This is totally fascinating. Like I'm learning the differences between different species of tuna, different cuts of tuna. That was kind of my first thing was like, man, this tuna, like you taste a, a, a Ventresca, right? From like an Al like mm. a Bonito del Norte Ventresca, which is like the albacore um, belly meat. Uh, and it's just like mind-blowingly different than say a, a, a can of chicken of the sea. You know what I mean? And don't sure. get me wrong. I love a, a classic deli tuna salad made with, with kind of whatever. But when you taste a tin of that side by side, it's like the difference of is it's not even a quality difference. It's like an apple and an orange, right? They're totally different things. And when I first tasted um, those, it wasn't six years ago. It was much longer than that. But I, with with uh, the cheese thing well-established and this motion of its own and our people super passionate about it, I had already turned my attention to chocolate. And then the chocolate thing was just alive and vibrant and carrying its own like momentum. And so at six years ago, I just... I felt like I had to delve in more deeply into this new category. So we did. Um, we weren't really able to wrap our mind around pushing it um, until about two years ago 
And that's really when we started, you know, educating, um, telling people the differences, um, starting mm. classes, you know, um, to really talk about history um, yeah. and why you would want to pay, say, why, why we have a $2 tin of sardines on our shelves and why we have a $12 tin of sardines on our shelves and why, sure. you know, what the differences are, right? Like why you should appreciate both of those things. Matt, I contrast what you're describing to my experiences at, you know, a Sam's Club. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I'm there to get, you know, some ice cream, some milk. And of course, I'm going to come across a lot of folk wanting to offer me samples. Never seen these folk in my life. Not particularly a fan of Sam's Club. You're offering me a product I've never heard of. Maybe it's cauliflower rice. I might be a bit resistant and admittedly keep walking. Compared to, I imagine, a customer's experience at Caputo's. You know, I've been shopping there for 10 years at this point. This is kinfolk named Matt asking me to eat some tin fish. It looks real funny, but yeah. I, I respect Matt. I trust Matt. He's been a great peer. I can't imagine a better experience willing to try something new than someone who you know has already shown that they, they care about me as a consumer. They're going to guide me throughout this process. How did folk first respond whenever y'all started to lean into this education and the questions followed, maybe tasting it for the first time. Were, 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 folk, were folk feeling it? Oh yeah, they, they were. And that's one of the things I, I, you know, Caputo's gets a lot of credit from a lot of people saying really kind things about how we do all this and we create the market for these things and our role in the craft chocolate movement and our role in now the conservist culture. But yeah. I, I got to be honest, like uh, we, we're really lucky, you know, we have the wind at our backs all the time because of I think Salt Lake City is, you know, a really advantageous place for us to be. Mm. Uh, you know, people be, being here in Utah, a lot of people, especially from, you know, bigger cities tend to think that this is some culinary backwater. And maybe in some regards, in some ways you want to compare it, maybe, maybe it is. I, I tend to just disagree with that. But the key thing is, is that the Salt Lake City consumer, like they are so open to new things. They are not, they have not already decided that, you know, oh, I've already had the best chocolate in the world. Like I was in Belgium. Sure. And I, I hear this a lot when I teach classes or go to maybe one of the more established markets on the East coast or something, you know, you know, you get this sense that people already kind of know what the best is. Uh, mm. And here in Salt Lake city, I think that people are very open to the, the thought that the, whatever someone has shown them at the farmer's market or at Caputo's, you know, maybe this is going to be the best honey I've ever tasted. Maybe this is going to be the best chocolate I've ever tasted. And, and they want, they're open to it. They're not necessarily, yeah. uh, close-minded and and so when we foster that sort of relationship with with a community that's open to it i mean it's been amazing to see people just you know keep an open mind when they're in our store and i think one of the key ways that we promote that is not just through our expertise like expertise is important and it's something that we take seriously um but at the same time what is what is expertise for is it, is it for showing off? No. Cause if it feels like that, then that, that turns people off immediately. And I've been in totally. a lot of shops, be they coffee shops or cheese shops or wine shops where it, it feels like just someone's trying to show off their knowledge. And, yes. and one of the things that we've always been really careful to, to do is be like, well, what's, why is this knowledge important in the first place? And the reason it's important is because we're super excited about these things. Why are we totally. super excited about them? Because of all these things that we know and we want to share those things, right? So it's, it's not yes. about like showing what we know. It's about, man, I tasted this can of tuna and I had never tasted anything like it before. It was like, it was almost like there was fresh butter inside of the tuna meat and I couldn't explain that. So I looked yeah. up why and here's all these reasons and the history and the canning process and the people that catch it on a line, you know. So you, you start telling people, all these facts to explain why you're so excited about it. And then you can go here, here's a taste of it. And they're yes. like, Oh my God, you're right. That is amazing. So it's, it's when, at Caputo's, we try and focus on connecting people to the foods 
through like these stories and the history because it's just fascinating man. you can't yes when you're introduced to it in that way it's just it's infectious right you just want to be a part of it that's exactly what i was going to say matt you mentioned you know the value of sharing the facts like I'm, I'm trying my best to describe this flavor it tastes like this because x y and z but what i have resonated most as someone who's never been to caputo's of course based here in denton but i follow y'all's online uh, presence, especially on Instagram, it's always followed up with stories. Yeah. And the stories are put in plain language, you know, trying to stay away from, you know, hyper expertise, yep. closing off this great experience to a select amount of folk. It's like, I'm messing with this tin fish. It tastes like X, Y, Z. We got some small folk in Portugal catching this pole in line. Come try this. It, it's that story that is time after time really resonated with me as a consumer even from afar so keep keep at it man it is yeah. it is a wonderful thing to oh, watch thanks man we can't stop <laughs> we're, we're just obsessed yeah. <laughs> we always find new things to be obsessed about and uh and and share those with the public but yeah you're right we do you do yeah. keep it simple right like no one's going to be super you know yeah i know the scientific names and the differences of all the fish and the tins but like you don't focus on showing that off. There's so much cooler stuff to talk about for, and, and we can yeah. get into that. And when I talk to other geeks, like it's fun to talk about that stuff. But when you come in and you're going to lead with that stuff, no, talk about how this company has been around since the 1800s and it's still family owned <laughs> and the amount of pride they take in it. And this can, like they literally went to the auction to get this like, 20 cans of clams just for caputos because we've been geeking out with them for the last five years and we we're now like just friends and you've got to taste these clams yeah. like unlike anything you've ever had and then someone says well how good can clams be and as it's heading to their mouth then they taste it and they're like oh that's what a clam procured by some geeky caputo friend that's been in the business since the 1800s <laughs> tastes like it's just different, man. You can't you can't compare it to anything. It's so fun. What a moment. What a moment. I'm I'm so curious about these classes. I remember seeing you advertising this on your Instagram. What does a conservus class look like at Caputo's? So conservus class, uh, well, first of all, we do we do them online now. So they're available yeah. to people all over the country. You sign up for this class. Wow. We send everything that you're gonna need to your door uh, in in advance of the class. And then we get on Zoom uh, and then we, you know, we do a class just like we've done them in Caputo's for a long time. I'll get up. I'm going to give you a little taste of the history, uh, a taste of like, you know, say uh, how Conservus started. You know, Conservus started actually, it's not one of these ancient things. Uh, when we talk about, say, prosciutto or cheese or wine, you know, you're talking about like thousands of years of history, whereas conservice is, is this more recent thing. You know, the preserving of foods uh, was actually started in response to the need for Napoleon to get high quality nutrition to the front lines hmm. groups. And so this this dude, Nicolas Appert, uh, was awarded this pri monetary prize that Napoleon put out to anyone who could supply the troops with high quality nutrition. And the modern day canning process was born back in France in those days. And, but it was mostly in response to just, you know, a need to get food to the troops. But soon after that, sure. it wasn't too long until uh, the Spanish kind of found out that like, oh, wow, if, if we age some of these fishes in this tin for a long time, it actually becomes much, much better. And so in the mm. 1840s, it kind of started to transist in Spain at first to this thing that wasn't just about preservation. It was about, it was about making something a value added product. So instead of a substitute mm. for fresh, simply because you needed calories to the front lines of the, the, of the Navy, um, it was about um, transforming something through preservation in the same way we transform a leg of fresh pork into a prosciutto through preservation, it becomes something much more valuable. This process started to happen. So we talk about that for the first little bit, give people a little taste of that. But then we'll, the first thing we like to do is do a blunt, what we call a blind tasting. Now it's, it's hard to do it in the online classes um, because, you know, we're sending stuff to people's door, but we'll do a side by side. You know, we send them a tin of 99 cent sardines and we send them a tin of $8 sardines. And we talk about the differences. 
you know, differences in the process. One being more of a sort of giant factory, giant aquaculture, um, differences in the fish quality, differences in the actual process of canning on a big scale and on a small scale. But when you taste them side by side, just like in the chocolate class or the cheese class, where you taste a giant agribusiness version of something, and then you taste it side by side, a small scale artisan version of something, even though the ingredients are identical, you instantly understand how one is a substitute for fresh in terms mm. of tin seafood, and the other one is a gourmet product that has is not a substitute. It's been transformed. You know, you would never say this is a replacement for fresh sardines. This is now completely different, right? Now we've gone into the apples and oranges sort of thing. And you can start to see why and you start to tie that back in to why you see in, in places like Spain and Portugal, there's this entire culture around this product where you can go into, you know, uh, bars, tavernas, vermutarias, uh, tapas places that they've for hundreds of years now dedicated to the practice of eating these tinned seafood products and pairing mm. them with delicious veg, uh, delis delicious beverages um, like ciders, beers, vermouths, wines. Um, and, 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 you know, you can go into Barcelona and go into a place that has been specializing in this in for, you know, since the late 1800s. And you see this vibrant culture with people from every sort of demographic, you know, people in their 20s, people in their 70s and like everything sure. all engaging in this like uh, incredible cultural thing that we we, we don't really have uh, anything like that in America. And when people are tasting through these products and start to understand why there's this culture of appreciation in areas like Galicia or Barcelona or, or Porto and, and uh, Portugal, and you, you instantly just become like entranced by it because you get it. You, you, when you taste a razor clam on a potato chip with the, you know, hundred year old uh, salsa espinolera recipe also mm. on top of it, and you put that bite in your mouth and you're just like, whoa, this is one of the best flavors I've ever had with any food product. And then you take the sip of vermouth and you're like, now I understand. <laughs> now I understand what is happening here. Like, I, how have I not been a part of this? Like, so it's, it's grows like crazy just when people become introduced to it in that way. You know what I mean? Yes. And you don't even have to worry about the kitchenware. No. You know what you're describing there. If I got a bag of chips, yep. I got a sleeve of saltines, got my tins, got my vermouth. That's all you need. Forget the specialty kitchenware. You're all set to enjoy a great meal. I, I've you've gotten to experience that once, Matt, at um, Jar Bar in Seattle. I don't know if you've um, made your way up there. It's a little restaurant in Pike's Place Market. But that was started because the owner you know, spent some time in Porto and went to many of the places that you're describing, where you straight up walk in, you yeah. get a cold beer, and you order a straight up tin of sardines, sit at the table and eat it. It, it was a lovely experience, especially in contrast of, you know, what many of us are used to. And that's just having, you know, our, our tin fish at home. Um, I, I hope we see more of yep. that in the United States. Do you foresee that experience with tin seafood making its way to the U.S. more? Absolutely. And it was well underway. Uh, so I have a separate company that does wholesale all throughout the U.S. Mm. and we import and distribute a lot of the tin seafood. It's, it's a separate company from Caputo's. It's called A Priori Specialty Foods. Most people will never heard about it because it's not a consumer facing. We don't sell anything to, to the public. It's all to bars, restaurants and specialty shops and even grocery stores all across the, uh, the U.S. and Canada. But definitely that was well underway. Like there, I mean natural wine movement, bars across the country, like we're, we're getting in deep. Like there's a, there were a lot of places that had, um, you know, menus that were basically entirely tin seafood driven. And so that was, really? that was happening like wildfire, like absolute wildfire. Now, of course the pandemic comes and, and we can't gather inside like we used to. And these types of, sure. of bars and things, of course, 
cater to very conscientious clients. You know, they care about sustainability. They care about gourmet things. And, and so, of course, they're so conscientious that they're not going out anymore. So those types of, of bars and restaurants have been put on hold more than most. And it kills me to know the, the suffering and anguish going on in that exact channel right now. But it'll be back. You know, it, it'll be back for sure. The, desi- the demand for those products has not gone away. It has definitely wow. continued to explode despite the pandemic. Um, uh, and one of the things you mentioned earlier is, is really important and something that I think is a really great silver lining of what's happened during this pandemic because we have seen, unfortunately, the just evisceration of the bar and restaurant um, world. But on the other hand, we've also seen a lot of them pivot to this, like turn into these bodegas um, that are selling totally. products like, you know, you mentioned, you know, they're doing, they're doing the meal kits, they're doing the, the pound of basil, they're doing tin seafood. And while we saw the supermarkets kill off those types of, of little corner bodegas or, you know, the butcher shops and the, the, the green grocers of, of yesteryear, um, that process was almost complete. And even in 2019, some of our country's best cheese shops and specialty shops continued to close their doors because of the pressures of the Sam's clubs and the Walmarts and the Amazons. And it was this terrible thing, which Caputo's fights against, but here we have the pandemic. And now all of a sudden we're seeing all these little corner shops pop up again. And people are supporting them en masse. Like some of these restaurants that I that we sell tin seafood to or, or chocolate bars to in New York and L.A. and in, in Texas and wherever, like they're doing well doing this. And a lot of them are saying, you know, I like this lifestyle. Like maybe I, maybe I wasn't supposed to be a restaurateur. And I really my hope is that this big trajectory of, of seeing uh, mom and pop shops close is is going to if not if not reversed that's what i'm holding out hope for but if not reversed at least we've got this incredible uh upswell of of little mom and pop shops again and i hope that a lot of them can stick around because i think you know we need more biodiversity in our food system we need need more diversity in our in the way we procure food in america and the consolidation that was going on is not in the human race's best interest. So it's a no. really cool thing to see. And there's a lot of tin people carrying tin fish out there, which is is amazing. I want to propose a vision to you. Mm-hmm. That it, it's ironic that you're describing this, Matt, you know, of the resurgence of the specialty markets. You know, of course, before the big box stores came around, that was very common for our main streets. You know, we had our go-to fish spot go-to yep. cheese spot, et cetera, et cetera. And Walmart, Amazon, everything became much more centralized. I recently finished a book about the future of grocery stores. And what this author proposed, Matt, was as Amazon becomes more prevalent in the grocery distribution side, everything that we get in the middle of our grocery stores, you know, the, the dry goods, the toiletries, will be what Amazon distributes, but we will continue to see a resurgence of the local specialty markets selling the things that we usually find on the perimeter. And once again, we'll have the local cheese shop, the local fish shop, and Amazon will be taking care of all this stuff, the middle grocery product. Do you think that's a viable vision? It's it's rowdy to think about. I hope so. I I really do hope hope so. so Um, I don't know. I I'm not, I don't predict the future very well. I know the things sure. that I'm passionate about. You know, our, our our mission at Caputo's is really simple. It's to fight to preserve the food traditions of our ancestors. And I don't just mean my mm-hmm. Greek and Italian ancestors. I mean that there's there's been, you know, native populations in every area of the world that have produced some amazing food traditions that are worth celebrating and worth keeping around that are getting continuously squeezed out. So to me, it constantly feels like a, a fight that is swimming sure. against the tide. If that tide were to ever shift in the other direction, man, I would welcome that with open arms. And, you know, we Caputo's needs more competitors, you know, even even in Salt Lake City, you've got to 
that, that's a victory when we see a shift in the way people buy their their foods. Uh, uh, I hope that happens. I, I hope so. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I'd welcome it. Yeah, maybe flash forward ten years from now, we'll have dozens of Tony Caputo's yeah. popping up. Cool. They find an, an old building and maybe a neighborhood that hasn't gotten much love. They have a simple idea and they have the means to try it out and maybe yeah. a local entrepreneurial ecosystem to support them throughout like Caputo's has done with your restaurants. That would be just lovely. I, I hope it comes to fruition as well. Um, sure. Let's talk about a little bit about the, the actual 10 seafood that Caputo sells. Okay. Can you give us a, a high yeah. level overview of your, your selection? So it's always growing and evolving, but oh, I haven't, I haven't counted recently, but we've got over, let's say 300 different, um, tins, um, everything from, let's say, you know, your common sardines and we've got, you know, every permutation of sardine you could possibly imagine from uh, literal sardines like Sardina plichardis, which is the, the actual sardine. A lot of things are, are grouped into that, but we've got herring, we've got shad, we've got sprats, um, which are all, all can be technically called sardines, but if you really want to get specific about things, there's different scientific names and they have different flavors. They tend to hmm. be in different areas, different waters, um, different cultures historically cap catching them. So we, we've got all the small oily fish from sardines to anchovies to herring and all that, uh, different recipes. Some of them are going to be smoked. Some of them are going to be in olive oil with spices. Some of them are just going to be on their own. Um, so love the small oily fish. I can't get enough of, of them. That There's something I eat almost every day because the mercury level is nil. So you can just sure. eat, eat, eat for every meal and never have a concern. But the tuna is also a really special thing, something that I'll limit myself to, you know, once or twice a week because tuna being higher on the food chain are definitely, you know, you've got some mercury in there, but a fascinating world of tunas, right? Like you've got your, you've got your bonito, which is your classic bonito, not bonito del norte, but bonito that's like sarda sardas, which is not technically a, a tuna, but then you've got your bonito del norte, which is your albacores. You've got your yellow fins. You've got your blue fins. You've got your skipjack, and they all have different textures and flavors. And then you layer on top of that, you know, different methods of fishing, different methods of packing, different recipes and manner of ha handling them, depending on the traditions of the specific cannery that's making them. And so I, I think, you know, the, the, at the cannery level, these are like the, the artisans that are like putting their own stamp on this raw material. Um, then you get into bivalves, right? Like bivalves, like your, your clams, your cockles, your razors, uh, scallops, and all sorts of other things that are just like um, very quality, huge, huge amount of quality differences based on size, based on where they come from. And there's all these little technical things that are pretty easy to learn that, that matter heavily, not only in terms of quality, but in terms of price, you know, you can see a can of clams, what of white clams, that'll be like, you know, 10 bucks. And you can see a can of white clams. That'll be 200 bucks and everything mm. in between. And there's these really simple factors like, you know, where they come from and how big they are. That's going to, to, to play into that price. Um, then you've got other specialties that we're seeing, like um, all sorts of pâtés, um, really unique things like baby eels in a can. You know, you can, we, wow. um, yeah, these these eels are fascinating, right? Like they they basically over in the Caribbean is where they're born, and then they take this 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 uh, course that takes them three years to get over to Spain, where they're finally harvested. And you look at these baby oh little things goodness. in the can, and you're like. These were born three years before. How are they still so? Anyway, these fascinating stories about yes. animals taking the Gulf Stream, and it's just uh, a lot of of really cool things. And I still feel like I'm just dipping my my toes in the water here. And that's what I love about you know when I fall in love with with cheese or chocolate or now tin seafood. Or, um, it feels like the more you know, the less you know. You know, the, the, sure. the more I learn about this, the more I find out. Like, oh man, I. I need to talk to this guy because he really knows something, you know? So it, it feels like it's just uh, no pun intended, an ocean of just 
never ending knowledge that you can, can continue to learn about. And at each step of the way, you know, you, you tend to appreciate the flavors and the textures of what you're tasting uh, more than ever is the more and more you learn. Yes. So Matt, if I'm on caputos.com uh-huh. looking for my very first handful of tins, where do you recommend I start? What should I be looking for? You got some top tins in your repertoire? Oh yeah. I always, I, you know, value is something I, I have to think of as, as well. Like I, I try not to suggest right off the bat, like the most expensive uh, example of something uh, sure. because, you know, just like, just like wine, like it depends, it's budget dependent, right? Like, am I going to think like a thousand dollar bottle of Bordeaux is amazing? Probably. But for my budget, maybe like a $50 bottle that I'd splurge on would be almost just as good. You know what I mean? And, and maybe, so, um, uh, I, I try to keep budget in mind. Um, and for that, I think, you know, a great place to start out with, if you want to see how different sardines can be from what you're used to in the grocery store. So you're just dipping your toes in the water here. I always go for like the Jose Gourmet small sardines in olive oil. Mm. And you can go with the smoke ones, you can go with the ones with lemon. But what I love about the plain ones just in olive oil is you're going to get an instant demonstration of, you know, not seasonings changing the flavor, not someone's recipe of, of, you know, hot peppers and tomatoes that of course a delicious sauce can make anything delicious. You can put a delicious sauce on an old boot and it'll taste delicious, but here's this raw material, just sardines. They're going to look different in the can. And when you take it out and you taste it, it is not going to taste like the sardines that, you know, we grew up eating and associating yeah. with those, this like super fishy flavor. They're delicate. They're flaky. You know, it's like if you perfectly cooked, a fresh little fish that it would, you know, it's got this white fleshy meat and it's fallen off the bone and oh my gosh, the mm. bone is so soft that you eat it and it's this huge calcium. Comp- anyway, the olive oil that they use at Jose Gourmet, it's super fragrant. You know, you get this smell of like, uh, it reminds me of a lot of Catalan oils where it's it's got this like little bit of peppery arugula sort of throaty kick to it, but it's also got this beautiful aroma of like um almost like stone fruit like peaches or apricots or something not the sweetness mm. but really more the aroma sure. so when you just open that can and you smell it it's like oh my god this olive oil that they used is so fragrant and delicious and then you you try and get your first bite with a fork and it kind of is hard to get it because the fish is so flaky and, <laughs> and it hits your palate and you're like whoa this is something totally different than what I was led to believe sardines were all about. So, and that's sure. an $8 can, right? So yes, it's expensive, but man, is it instantly different. So I love Jose Gourmet for that. Um, I'd also encourage people to check out um, Razor Clams, one of my favorite ways to introduce people to bi- bivalves because I think you can get a really high quality for, you know, 15, 14, 15 bucks these days. It's a good entry point for, for um, Razor Clams. Whereas a lot of the other bivalves, that's where stuff gets expensive. You know, you can get really expensive cockles, really expensive clams, but the, the, uh, the razor clams, there's a specific skew from Espinolaire in, in Barcelona that is there. Um, there's two, there's two varieties we have right now. There's the trimmed and the untrimmed, um, trimmed, you know, th- these razor clams are, are long, almost like a jackknife. So they sit in the sand. Uh, vertically. So they dig in uh, with their long end going down and, and one of them going up. And sometimes when you, you harvest them, if they're not, it's not a super healthy spe- uh, specimen or it was harvested at the wrong time or in a rough way or w- all sorts of different things that can happen, the bottom of the animal can fill up with sand. So you get a lot of sand in it. And hmm. easy way to deal with that is just to trim it, like literally cut the end of the clam off. But I think once you put that in the brine, and in the can and you cook it a lot is kind of lost. So I, I tend to look for the untrimmed varieties and a spindler has an untrimmed one right now that is still almost no sand in it at all. And wow. they, so they look really funky. There's super long clams inside. And, but I'm telling you, it's just try it on a potato chip with a little bit of hot sauce of your choice. Um, absolutely easy to love. 
toothsome texture. The texture on the tooth is just really pleasant and enjoyable. It's like a little bit rubbery, but then the it gives to the tooth and snaps through it. It's just a really pleasant mm. texture, really easygoing flavor. Um, so I, those are my two top two products that I go to and tell people like, you've got to try these two things to compare to what you think tin seafood is. Um, but with sure. those, with those razor clams, make sure you save the brine in the, in the, in the can. That's actually what connoisseurs, you know, they'll give the razor clams to the, to the kids, save the juice, drink that, you know, you'll notice when you look at it, it's, it's actually not this weird tin seafood juice. It's actually this beautiful broth. So if you think of mm. like a broth, I'll even warm it up in, in the oven a little bit or like throw it on the stove just to, just to give it, get it a little bit warm. There's little bits of, of fat and that's like fat from the clam. And so you take a scoop wow. of it, it's almost like having this incredible like clam broth. Um, those are great. I, I'd also encourage people to try um, uh, a great simple mackerel, mackerel and olive oil. Uh, it's one of my favorite fish to eat for lunch. Tons of protein, easy to love. Um, it's almost as easy to love as, as like a, a tuna or something like that, but it's not going to have the mercury content. So, and those are fairly, generally fairly inexpensive as well. Patagonia provisions, same company mm. that makes the coats and, 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 um, you know, like outdoor gear, they've gotten into the tin fish game and they have a really in affordable version. I think they're six ninety nine, and they've got like three different recipes of mackerel. So all line caught on one hook, one fish basis, super sustainable way to fish super healthy, low in mercury. Um, and the, the, the cannery that they're working with out of Galicia, Spain, uh, is also, a, a certified B Corp. Everything's organic okay. that, that goes into the can really beautiful aquaculture, agriculture going into that can. And of course, every part of the earth is considered. So love their stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I tend to go off in too many directions, but if I had to start with three, I would do those Jose Gourmet um, small sardines in olive oil, the Espinolaire um, uh, razor clams, not the trimmed, the, the untrimmed, and then maybe a mackerel from Patagonia Provisions. Or but then I you got it. Then you got to talk about the the small American canneries, though, right? Like there's there's almost all of them closed over the last hundred years and succumb to the pressure of, of bigger canneries out competing them. But there's, there's a small handful left. And so to leave them out of the discussion of, of uh, what to try first would be a real shame. So I would also add into that mix, you know, someone like Wildfish up in Klawak, Alaska, with their yes, specializing in, dude, when you have a can of just their simple, like smoked coho, you open that can and you can just look at it and be like, oh, this is a very small cannery. This is an artisan product. And you then the smell washes over you. It's like, wow, this is a, a small scale artisan smokehouse cannery that is doing something very different than everybody else. And you see the same thing with the Okone smoked oysters or smoked mussels. If you love smoked oysters or smoked mussels, if that sounds like something good to you, you got to try the Okone product from uh, Washington State absolutely treasure of a small smokehouse and cannery that has been passed down from the guy who opened it now to the guys that he was buying the actual shellfish from at Taylor Shellfish. Wow. He, so he was retiring, right? The guy that started this company, the smokehouse in the seventies, he was retiring, didn't really have anyone to pass it down to. Um, and I'm so, so happy when they find someone like a fifth generation, still family run shellfish farmers, in Wallapia Bay, Washington, that want to take on that sort of and keep the tradition going, um, they're doing great things, man. So you can't go without Akone oysters and 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 uh, mussels. I'm rocking my wildfish cannery hat. Love it, man. I know this this podcast is just gonna be audio, but fantastic company and listeners. They're gonna be um, on our second episode coming out. Um, in April. So stay tuned to learn more about Wildfish Cannery. Well, Matt, this has been an absolute joy. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and talk 10 fish, learned a lot, not only about the history of Caputo's, but also um, your perspective on um, 10 fish from 
the retailer side. Um, you have been so generous and um, created a promo code for listeners to get some discounted tin fish on the Caputo site. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reminding me. I always forget the like important housekeeping stuff of how we have to stay in business <laughs> and make money. And so yeah, so first of all, caputos.com, I think it, a really interesting little tidbit is that tin seafood and conservice are always shipped for free. No minimum. You can order one tin that wow. ships for free. Um, of course, we love it when people buy more than that. But yeah, we've got a, we've got a code for your listeners that'll be good. Um, until March 31st, I believe, that is going to be just PEEP THE TIN, all caps. You enter that in at the checkout process and you'll get an extra 10% off. Beautiful. Matt, thank you. This has been such a joy. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Matt Caputo of Tony Caputo's Market in Delhi. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to PEEP THE TIN on iTunes and visit peepthetin.com. We can find the Peep the Tin blog, our favorite tins, and join the Peep the Tin community to connect with tin fish advocates from around the world. Thanks and talk soon.